Thank you very much indeed, and I'm very pleased to, to be here, which is slightly strange, you know, being here on the, on the home turf, as it were, um, but I've been very honoured to be asked. Um, I was once told when starting a lecture you should never apologise, and, and mostly I don't, even though some of my lectures may need an apology, but, but I'm, going to, I'm going to stray slightly from my title in that I will, I will get to the Romans, but I'm going to take a long run-up. Um, I'm going to start with the Bronze Age, um, which is about a thousand years before the Romans, and... Um, although I'll stray from my title, hopefully what I'll say will be germane to the subject matter of, of this series, which is to do with societies in transition. And what I want to talk about and juxtapose um, are two aspects of, of maybe all human societies. I'll leave you to, to judge. On the one hand, there are long-term aspects of, of social and cultural change. Um, which unfold over long periods of time. So this is a, this is a, a, a slide taken from the work of um, Ferdinand Brodel, the, the famous French historian, um, which in turn he took much of this graph from a, a, an economist called Kondratiev. And, and as I'm sure you all know, Brodel was interested in history at various different scales. So on the one hand, there, there was the history, the sort of stuff that I did at school, the, the battles, the, the acts of parliament, the events, um, which to some degree for someone like Brodel was the froth on the top of what was really happening. And beneath there were these longer term movements of, of human society so what this shows you, and I won't go into detail, are um, the, the nature of production. So you have 1710 over on the left-hand side and whatever you have, 19-something or other, 1950 over on the right-hand side. Um, so he was interested in production on the one hand, that rising graph, and then fluctuations in the nature of price. Um, the, the sorts of things that were beyond direct human control. And this, for Braudel, was a sort of middle level of history. Beneath that were the really long-term spans of, of history, which slightly disappointingly for the archaeologist turn out to be rather environmentally determined. Um, the, the long durée for, for Braudel was to do with the relationship with the environment um, and the, the, the constraints and the imposition that various environments place upon people. I'm going to talk about the long durée even longer than this. What I'll talk about today is, is mainly about artefactual changes. Um, I'm going to focus on metalwork in particular. Metalwork mainly because metals are so malleable, if you know how to work them. You can do all sorts of different things with them. They're fantastically changeable. Um, but also, archaeologists have realised, and I'll go into a bit more detail um, in a little while, that, that actually artefactual forms can take, um, can rem remain remarkably stable over centuries and even longer. Um, and, and they provide some sort of understanding of very long-term history, which is beyond individual or group control, but, but has a profound impact on um, the ways in which people organise themselves. So when looking at something like the Roman invasion of Britain, which occurred in AD 43, um, which 
in some ways was, was an event. Um, the Claudian army landed in Britain and, and over a period of a century or so subjugated the various bits of Britain. Um, in order to understand that, I'm going to take this long durée notion and, and, and think about what artefacts can tell us and artefactual change can tell us and, and then look at the, the, at the, the Roman invasion and the, the incorporation of Britain into the Roman Empire against this, this background of long durée. And although I won't necessarily go on about it too much here, one of the things that I am working on is that objects alter people, um, which is a slightly sort of counterfactual thing. I mean, obviously, people make objects, but equally, we're all born into particular physical material circumstances which profoundly affect um, the ways in which we interact with each other, the ways in which we sense the world. So one of the things that um, a, a sub-theme is that objects are in, in to some degree, are in charge of us rather than we are in charge of them. So that's, that's one thing. It would be interesting to see what people think. So, so that's on the one hand. There's the, there's the long durée, the things that unfold over centuries and millennia. On the other hand, there are a series of, of things that people are realising about the human form, um, particularly to do with the human brain and the brain in the body, which is how incredibly plastic the human brain is. Now, obviously, I speak as a layperson in these matters, um, but I'm very interested in, in um, the, the, the ways in which uh, human activities and our activities with objects uh, affect our sensorium, the way in which we're wired, wired up the brain through the central nervous system and so on. So... Um, Counterposing the, the sort of the very long durée is the idea that, and I have to read this because the numbers are so large, we each of us in our brains have something like 100 billion neurons. Um, so little, little neural cells, which is a very large number, obviously. But, but it's estimated, and I don't think anybody really knows this, that there are something like 100 trillion connections between those neurons. Now, we're all born with more or less the same set of neurons, I guess. How would I know? Um, but the ways in which they're wired up, the synaptic connections between them, those 100 trillion, depend quite a lot on our life experience. So on the one hand, we all have the same brains. Um, on the other hand, they, they become wired up in the course of our lives in rather different ways. So what this slide shows you is um, the neurons at various different... So that's newborn, that's three months through to adult. And, and as we operate in the world, we experience various different things, we act on the world, then we make new connections in our brains... Um, and therefore, our actions in the world profoundly affect who we are. Um, so this is, this is the, the asynapse. Um, and a, a further fact is that our brains are obviously organs of our body. So the ways in which our bodies move um, influence the brain and vice versa. And, and our bodies, in turn, are connected with the material world. So for someone like me, um, 
having a different set of artefacts means that our bodies operate in different ways, means that our brains are wired up in different ways, means that we experience and operate in the world in quite different ways. So, so artefacts um, are, are not in any sense passive, they influence who we are. Um, and, and how we operate. And a, a study that I, I like that demonstrates this to some degree, there's this small area of the brain called the hippocampus, um, which is to do with spatial awareness, again, apparently. And London cabbies have bigger hippocampi than the rest of us um, because of the knowledge. I mean, whether this will be true in a few years' time because of GPS and all that, but right now, and scientific tests have proven that the cabbie's hippocampus is, is bigger than, than uh, well, almost certainly bigger than mine. So, so one, one can say that, that brains are recognisably, they, they, they have a structure which we all share and inherit, but, but the way in which that structure develops depends on the way in which we develop in the world. And... Again, I won't go on about this, but, but various neuroscientists are starting to work with, with philosophers to say that our sensory motor systems, that the, the motor systems of the body and, and the brain together, um, are linked in some way, the sets of neural connections, are linked in some way to the sets of neural connections which are to do with concept formation. So actually the ways in which we think, the ways in which we form concepts, derive to some degree from the actions of our body. And what this is starting to do is to break down the distinction between mind, that abstract space in which thoughts are, are developed and, and um, worked on, and our body, the physical, mechanical body. The two things aren't different, um, and in some ways... Um, controversially, one can say that, that we don't have any such thing as a mind in that sense. We, we, have, we have embodied experience and, and reality. Um, so uh, I'll come back to, to human plasticity at the end, um, but mainly I'm going to talk about objects and this long durée. Um, so just, to, just to, to follow on from what I was saying about the brain, I mean, if, if what I've been saying is half true, and obviously I've strayed beyond my areas of expertise, but if what I've said is half true, then, then our relationship with objects is a very active one um, and, and makes us what we are. And different people around the world are quite profoundly different. And, and having a new object, and I'm going to talk in a minute about swords, having a new object will give us a different sense of, of personal space, for instance. Um, there, there's the intimate personal space of our body, there's the reaching sphere, and then when we have extra objects which will extend our bodies, um, they will, they will affect the, the actions of our body, affect our interactions with others, um, and, and um, bring about a reordering of our sensibilities, potentially our concepts, potentially our emotions. Okay, so... A rather wild introduction, but bear with me because I'll, I'll, I'll try and ground some of these things a little bit more. Um, so, so my propositions are that, that um, people and objects and societies um, are, are um, intimately linked. And I'm going to use these ideas to think first of all about the world before the Romans and then think about the sorts of changes that, that um, may come about once the Romans 
entered Britain. So I'm going to concentrate on metalwork, um, as I say, because metalwork is, is a, a very sort of malleable aspect of, of human society. And I'm going to think over a very long duration. Um, I'm going to start, which is where this map starts, at about 1500 BC, 3,500 years ago, with the invention of the sword, which probably took place, those of you who were here last week, a slightly gratuitous link with last week's lecture, which was about Crete, partly. Um, the Bronze Age sword started in Europe, about in, in, probably in, in Minoan Crete, um, something like 17, 1600 BC, moved to the Mycenaean world, and then spread up through Europe in various different ways. Um, they're quite amazing objects. They come in various shapes and sizes, um, and they come in very regular shapes and sizes, um, both in terms of, of how they're found at any one moment and also their development over time. So in many areas, um, there is a, a, a recapitulation of a developmental sequence from relatively short things, daggers, rapiers, and so on, to rather longer things, um, a, a, and eventually one gets true swords, which are not just thrusting weapons, but, but slashing weapons. So, so in this part of the world, people accept um, swords developed in the Mediterranean and change them in ways that are, um, that, that are, are, are of, of local relevance and, and resonance. These are some rather wonderful Danish reenactors who are reenacting the, the, um, the, the Bronze Age um, and, and um, using swords in various different ways to, to, to um, fight with. Um, and it's not, just, it's not just swords that change regularly. It's a whole panoply of um, metal objects. It, through the Bronze Age, there are a series of things to do with um, uh, personal ornament. So in, in Denmark, again, we get some... In the Bronze Age, from about 1500 BC, we get oak coffins um, where bodies were sealed in oak coffins and put in bogs. Um, and these, because they've been wet, preserve the body very well, so I often get hair and hairstyles, um, clothing, and then um, metallurgy and various other things. So we can see how metal styles were, were deployed. Um, and and um, things like pins um, and various headgear, um, hats and so on of various different types, have regular shapes and regular sizes, but also very minor regional variations. So different bits of Denmark, different bits of North Germany, people have slightly different sets of orn ornaments um, that, that link them together um, because they're broadly similar, but also divide them up in various different ways as coming from a particular place um, uh, rather than another place. As well as people having regularities in their dress, their personal ornaments, things like weapons, in the Bronze Age there's a lot of regularity in how materials enter the archaeological record. I'm leaping about a bit, but we're now in um, northern Belgium and, and southern Holland, um, back with swords, and, and many of the swords in this area are thrown into rivers, um, as they are in many parts of the world. Um, 
for reasons that we don't entirely understand. Um, but, but many of the rivers of Europe have large numbers of, of metalwork. Ah, yep. um, and this shows you a little schematic um, diagram of a, a, a Bronze Age settlement, a set of graveyards, another settlement here, and a big, a big river here meeting a small river. And at the points where big rivers and small rivers meet, again for reasons that we don't understand, um, there is regular deposition of metalwork, of, of axes, of, of swords. And although we don't really understand the periodicity, how often people throw this stuff away, there are estimates on the basis of artifactual change that every 25 years or so, the community got together and deposited quite a large amount of metalwork in very specific spots in the landscape. So, so metalwork was to do with um, the ways in which people operated in, on the day-to-day, -day, how they ornamented themselves, um, how they made tools, but also these more periodic forms of deposition and, and the man who, who I've taken these slides from, a guy called David Fontaine, described these communities as sacrificial communities. He said they were communities by virtue of the fact that they deposited objects of very particular types in very particular parts of the landscape. And rather speculatively, he linked objects to, um, a, in this case, a male life cycle, young boys who had very few, no metal objects, um, younger adults who, who acquire a range of swords and axes and, and various different things, which they keep through adulthood, but then older males seem to divest themselves of these. So where they're found in burial, and um, we can age the burials, we can tell what people have with them. And it's possible that the stuff that ends up in water is, is people divesting older, older men, older women, divesting themselves of objects um, for the community good, by and large, um, on a regular basis. So, so we have a series of links between objects um, which are to do with the nature of community, how people relate to each other, how communities are different in, in one small area from another but also to do with the nature of the life cycle um, and, and how people become a full member of, of a community and then ease themselves out of that. By the end of the Bronze Age, um, and we're now looking at the period about 800 BC, we encounter in places like Britain and northern France huge hordes of things like axes, um, which were often buried in pristine condition. This is a relatively small one. Some of the very big hordes have um, nine, ten thousand objects in them. Um, this is a horde from a place called Tower Hill um, up on the Berkshire Downs. Um, a, a, a series of newly made axes, never used, deposited with various other bits and pieces. Um, of, of, and I hope you can appreciate from that, of highly standardised types, um, all pretty well exactly the same, those axes, for the, the aficionado. One can see very minor differences, but they are incredibly minor, um, and deposited, in this case, not in water, but in very particular parts of, uh, of the landscape. And if we look at the Bronze Age as a whole, 
Um, what you can hopefully see here, this is, this is to do with the Bronze Age of Britain. We have a series of names here, Acton, Taunton, Pennard. These are all places um, from which mainly hordes came. Um, and, and the hordes are, are named after the place, and therefore the phase of metalwork is named after the place. And roughly every hundred years or so, um, the, the metal types change from one set of types to another. So the swords change from one set of swords, the axes change from another set of swords. So they last for, for four human generations or so, and then they change for reasons that we don't entirely understand. Um, but my argument to you is that these are not functional changes. We can't understand the ways in which the metalwork change in terms of, of progression, in terms of, of producing, um, producing artefacts which are better at a particular job. Many of the changes are quite minor. The Bronze Age specialists are a breed unto themselves, there's at least one of them here, so I won't, I won't be too rude about the Bronze Age aficionados, but you have to, you have to be um, into detail to really get into the changes in the Bronze Age. Um, and, and to the rest of us, these changes are, are, are apparent, but relatively small ones. But, but what it's not clear is, is why these things change, uh, and also why apparently they change quite so regularly. Um, and these phases were defined initially purely um, on the basis of the material, um, and these dates have been arrived at partly through a program of dating here at the Oxford Lab, which confirmed the sequential nature of these phases, but also provided real calendrical dates as to what as to what happened, um, as to what happened when. Um, if one were to sum up the Middle and Late Bronze Age, possibly unfairly, it's people are going for quantity of metalwork and standardisation rather than necessarily quality. So people are producing large amounts of material in very standard types over quite large areas of Europe, which, which is presumably to do with a sort of broader regularity in their lives, the things they wore, the things they threw away, um, and, and helped maintain a, a structure of continuity whereby people could deal with other elements of their life which were changing. This Bronze Age world lasts, it's slightly hard to date the end of this, until about somewhere between 800 and 700 BC, where, where quite a different relationship between people and metalwork evolves. Um, 800 BC, roughly speaking, is the start of the Iron Age. Um, but actually, at this period... Um, the old model of the shift from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age was that there was a relatively um, perceptible transition. People gave up bronze, a slightly um, softer metal, for iron, which was slightly harder um, and slightly more available in terms of its raw material. And this was seen in an older archaeology as a form of progression, a sort of technological progression from a bronze technology, which wasn't quite so good, to an iron technology, which was better. Um, looking at the m matter a bit more, we can see this in a slightly different way, I think. This is a schematic um, 
and very definitely a schematic uh, a, a diagram of, of bronze deposition. So here we have some of these phases again, um, 1300 BC, 1211, Pennard, Wilburton, and, and this shows you, gives you some sense of bronze deposition. So in this final phase called Ewart Park, there are these enormous hordes which people are throwing away in huge amounts, and then bronze dies away into the Iron Age, as one might expect. But, but what you might then expect is that you, if you had a diagram of iron, the iron technology takes off, and that you get lots of iron, but actually you don't get any, well, you get very little iron at all. So as bronze dies away, you don't actually get any, or very little iron, it doesn't take over. People seem, for a, several centuries, from about 800 BC to 400 BC, to fall out of love with metal. Metal, for a while, is not a big issue in people's lives. Um, and then there's, there's bits of rather grotty metal. Uh, uh, this is iron, iron copies of bronze axes, um, which are rather unusual and, and special, and to our eyes not particularly attractive. But when metal comes back again from about 400 BC onwards, it comes back in very different forms. Um, and at, at present, one of the projects that I'm working on is on so-called Celtic art, this stuff, the, the material from um, the Middle Iron Age, 400 BC, through into the Roman period. I am approaching the Romans now. Um, and the, the metalwork comes back. But rather than being masses of metalwork, we get much smaller amounts. Um, but it's fancy stuff. So if one were, if one were to again, sort of characterise boldly these changes from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. It's a change from quantity in the Bronze Age and regularity to quality and idiosyncrasy in the Iron Age. Um, this is the so-called Battersea Shield in the British Museum, for anyone who wants to see it. It came out of the River Thames in, in, near Battersea in 1853 or thereabouts. And it's a fantastic thing. It's, it's, it's smaller than you think. It's only a tiny little thing, so it's not really a shield at all. It's, it's probably some sort of um, parade or, or ritual thingamajig. Uh, made of beaten bronze, um, very thin, finely beaten bronze, with these three roundels within it, um, and, and inlays of, of various red glass. Um, remember the red glass, um, as it will come up in my story in a, in a few minutes. If you look at this, and, and you probably can't see the detail, it looks broadly symmetrical. Um, around, uh, around either axis. But if you actually look in detail at the decoration, both sides are subtly different from each other. And the nature of Iron Age decoration in this period seems to be willfully sort of profligate and varied. So it's quite different to the standardisation of the, of the Bronze Age. People are producing things which are, which are very striking and very different. Um, if you remember the Bronze Age swords, nice bits of bronze, sometimes with decent hilts, um, but not particularly decorated. This is, a, this is a sword from a place called Kirkburn in e East Yorkshire. Um, dates to probably um, about 250 BC. We tried to radiocarbon date this here at the lab 
because the middle of the, of the handle is made of bone or horn, but we couldn't get a date out of the darn thing, and we couldn't take too big a piece out because the BM got a bit, a bit uh, worried about us. Tom Hyam drilling, uh, drilling into the order of their prize pieces. But, but I think what you can appreciate, if you can remember back to the Bronze Age swords, this is a sword of a very different type. This is a very fancy sword. Um, it's inlaid, again, on the handle with, with red enamel. What you probably can't see quite so clearly is yellow enamel. Um, this bit here is actually the scabbard rather than the sword. The sword is, is made of iron and is fused inside. The scabbard is made of two plates. This front one here, which is made of bronze, the back one, which you can't see, made of iron. And what you can hopefully work out is, is a very intricate set of, of surface decorations. Um, so in the Bronze Age, again, to be unkind to the Bronze Age, people produce lots of nice surfaces, but often, very rarely, do they really decorate them. Not in this part of the world. Whereas, whereas come the Iron Age, people find it impossible not to decorate a good surface. So this is an exploded view of the Kirkburn sword, um, so a, a view that one could never get in reality. So there's the sword itself with the various components of the, of the hilt and, and handle, um, the, the front plate, the, black, the back plate. And, and again, it's, it's, um, it's a virtuoso piece in terms of, in terms of um, its production. It's also a virtuoso piece in terms of its appreciation. Um, People had to be very skilled to make these things, but they also had to be very skilled to appreciate them because there are quite a lot of swords and, and there are lots of, of relatively minor variation. But again, and now I'm guilty of this, if you get into the minutiae of the Iron Age sword, and there is quite a lot of minutiae, um, then you can say that, that although broadly speaking these decorations look the same, I think even here you can appreciate they're all different. Um, and, and again, slightly willfully so, that people are, are producing patterns which are um, ambiguous, they're transformative, and even if, if you look at this one from Sutton, um, the River Trent in, in Nottinghamshire, if you look at different bits of the decoration, they're all subtly different from each other. So people are producing enormous variety um, rather than necessarily quantity. And a lot of these things have quite complicated life histories. So the Kirkburn sword... Um, was one of at least three swords which are quite similar to each other but seems to have been buried about a century or so later than the other two. Um, it had its scabbard split and put back together again in quite a skillful way. And by the time it was buried, it was older than any of the human beings there buried with it. And one can imagine that these objects were the bearers possibly of stories, of histories of various different types. And maybe the idiosyncrasies of the objects um, were important to sustaining those stories to sustaining the, 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 the nature of the, the individuals who, who, through whose hands these passed and the nature of, of the burial, the forms of deposition, which again are much more varied than the, than the Bronze Age forms of deposition, generally speaking. My old friend, get a fix the Druid. Um, we, we, I've just put get a fix up there to remind us that, that we should always beware that our notions of materials, the material world, 
um, are just part of a range of how people viewed materials and interacted with materials. We, as good 20th, 21st century analysts, tend to think in terms of the mechanical properties of bronze and iron, how difficult it is to work these things. Um, and obviously, anyone doing these things would have to have an appreciation of those things, but they wouldn't necessarily appreciate them in ways that we would understand and broadly speaking, we might expect that there were more uh, magical sets of relationships with objects um, using a, a crude set of terms. So people's, people's relationships with objects um, may not just have been to do with um, the laws of, of, as we understand them, of physics and chemistry and biology. There were a different set of relationships that entangled them with objects uh, and objects with them. And, and an object like this one, which is a bronze mirror, um, slightly later in the Iron Age, we're probably dealing with 100 BC now, this is the back of the mirror, again, a, a very thin bronze plate um, with a cast bronze handle in this case some of them have got iron handles this is the back and you can see again a very intricate set of decorations which is broadly um, broadly symmetrical but once you look at either side it's not we might tend to think of mirrors as as being to do with you know personal grooming vanity you know putting on your makeup, shaving, whatever it happens to be. But in the ancient world, many mirrors, we know from the Greek and Roman worlds, many mirrors were to do with divination, um, were to do with, with reflections and dealing with other worlds. So we need to bear in mind that the relationships that people had with their objects were, were framed and phrased in very different ways to the relationships that we might expect. So my argument is, in comparing the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, is that the Bronze Age was a world of standardisation and mass. The Iron Age is a world of idiosyncrasy and, and wild um, decoration, which is mainly true, but not entirely. There are some aspects of Iron Age material culture, Iron Age metallurgy, which are much more standardised. So these little things, very beautiful things, little safety pins, fibulae, to hold people's clothing together. Um, phase A up here, these are actually Swiss ones. Um, phase A, obviously, is the earliest phase in, in absolute terms, about 400 BC. Um, phase Five, phase V rather down here is, is um, we're, we're dealing with a, a 100 BC or probably later and you can see that these things go through standardised changes and forms. So some elements of, of Iron Age material culture are, are not standardised, others are. So we're actually dealing with um, and a, a playoff between the standard and the less standard. And, and maybe that's to do with a greater complexity of the nature of the community and a greater complexity of the nature of, of, um, of individual identities. Whereas in the Bronze Age, communities and individual identities were somewhat more standardised. Um, there, there's, there's that difference in... in the, the, there's a, a tension in the Iron Age between the more standardised and the less so. This world changes, the world that I've just been talking to you about, this, this world changes in the late Iron Age. So in this country, from about 150, 100 BC, um, 
that the earlier world of the Iron Age changes um, and we get much greater amounts of material culture and we get much more standard amounts and we get new things like coins. Um, this is a relatively local coin, um, an inscribed late Iron Age coin with a, with a nice motif on the back. Um, and the, the Sorry, I'll just go back. And the fibulae that we're looking at um, from about 100 BC onwards, these are produced in huge numbers and in much more standardised forms. Um, and, and, and these things happen in areas of life, areas of material culture outside um, metallurgy. Wheel-turned pottery is found for the first time in Britain from about 150 BC onwards. People produce standardised forms of pot Maybe they're eating and cooking in more standardised ways. Um, as I say, the coins. And the coins, this is this part of the world, and it's slightly anachronistic. It says Oxford there. This is the Iron Age, so Oxford wasn't there, but it gives you a sense of where we are. And, and, and there, are, there are coins with, with different tribal inscriptions on, um, and although it's slightly tricky, um, we may be do, dealing with different groups of people, the, the blue people, who may be the Dabuni from the, the west, um, the, the more yellow people from, from the east and so on. So, so it may be that there are more standardised forms of material culture arising from 150 BC, which again are stabilising the nature of, of human identities. Um, here are the Romans. This is the Roman, this is the Roman Empire um, emerging out of um, the Mediterranean, the, the Italian core, um, and, and various different further flung parts of the empire were incorporated later in the piece. So the Mediterranean areas um, were, were incorporated about 120 BC for southern France. But, but although Julius Caesar had a go in 55 and 54 BC, didn't quite work, and it wasn't until Claudius came back in 43 AD that Britain becomes incorporated into the empire. Um, there have been lots of <laughs> discussions about whether Romans were good for you or not, and this is one of the great tomes of, of British history, 1066 and all that, who summed up in, in more succinctly than anybody else could. The Roman conquest was, however, a good thing with a capital G, capital T, since the Britons were only natives at the time. So, so for many people in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, Romanization was very good for was very good for you because they brought nice roads and baths and, and um, toilets and a whole range of things that you know, any self-respecting civilised person might want. Come the later 20th century, in a more post-colonial world, um, then it was thought that maybe the Romans weren't quite so good for you, um, that, that they were a, 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 an imperial power that, that um, attempted to impose various things on the native population, let's say, of Britain. But actually, we should understand um, the Roman period in Britain not just in terms of Roman imposition, or maybe not mainly in terms of Roman imposition, but also in terms of, of, of um, local agency, the Iron Age folks, um, subverting Roman rule, changing Roman rule in various different ways. And maybe the Iron Age folks had more of a, 
I say ultimately, than in fact the Romans did. So, so from the 1980s onwards, people, um, in looking at Romano-British culture, the joint culture of, of, of Romans and Britons in Britain, um, the emphasis was more on the British end than the, the Roman end. I mean, to some degree... I'm saying the same thing, but I'm also saying a slightly different thing to the post-colonial folks. I'm saying that if we look um, at what was happening from AD 43 onwards, from a very long-term perspective, in terms of of the nature of artefactual change... um, we can see that the Romans were only part of the story rather than the whole story. And, and, and what I would think is that many of the features that we recognise very clearly from Roman Britain from AD 43 onwards actually start 150 years, 200 years prior to that with this shift from the Middle Iron Age, idiosyncratic, um, highly decorated way of doing things to a rather more standardised set of material forms that that arise in the pre-Roman period um, and then keep going into the Roman period. So so in order to understand... um, the changes that the Romans undoubtedly brought about, um, we have to think in, in these longer-term perspectives. This is, this is Asterix again, uh, not Getafix the Druid, but this is Vercingetorix um, throwing his, his uh, weapons at Caesar's, Caesar's feet. So this is, this is indigenous agency, in, uh, again, encapsulated. In. So... I mean, what did the Romans do for us? They did a whole range of things, like roads, for instance. Um, They divided the country up into various um, administrative areas uh, and and various capitals. So this is Caliva, um, present-day Silchester to the south, um, um, Sirencester over to our west, obviously London and and St Albans. Um, So they imposed a political structure. There's no two ways about that. The the army came in, they levied taxes, they did a whole range of things. But but here I get a bit Brodellian that to some degree these things are are to some extent superficial and that at a more basic level people were organising the community. So this map's quite a nice one in that you have... um, the, the, the Belgae, the Atrobates, the, the possible natives uh, lurking there under this uh, Roman structure and, and pursuing forms of material and pursuing forms of relationship um, that, that predate the Romans. Um, here are a couple of Roman Britons. Um, Ian Cartwright, our photographer, who I'd like to thank for helping me with technical, uh, technical problems with my PowerPoint. Ian suggested that this woman was laughing at the, the boldness of, the, uh, of her partner here. But, uh, but uh, th- these are two people dressed in Roman, Romano-British dress, um, which obviously isn't the, the dress of the toga. Um, that, that it's a, a, an adaptation of, of prior ways of doing things, prior ways of dressing. And, and although you can't really see, um, she's got various aspects of jewellery and so on, um, which to some degree continue out of the late Iron Age. Um, 
and the standardization that we can see in Romano-British material culture is a standard, and again these are fibulae, is a standardization that starts prior to the Romans, um, is reinforced probably by Roman um, structures, um, but, but doesn't straightforwardly derive from them. And also there are very complicated things that happen, quite difficult things to happen, uh, things to understand that happen in the metalwork. So this is a set of, these are very beautiful um, engravings, uh, a book produced by the British Museum in the 1860s. This is a hoard from a place called Polden Hills in Somerset. This is a set of horse gear. Horse gear, which is produced in Roman style to some degree, um, in that these these are flat bits that were were bits of the harness and and chariot fittings of of horses, probably in the first century AD. Um, Some of the metals that were used are brass, a metal that was introduced by the Romans, bronze with an addition of zinc. But you'll remember back to things like the Kirkburn sword and so on, Here's red enamel on these things, yellow enamel, blue enamel, which comes out of local Iron Age traditions, um, which predate this set of stuff by four, five hundred years. Um, and, and, and in trying to say whether these are Roman or British artifacts, it depends where one puts the emphasis, one could say either. Um, and you can see here... Uh, this, is a, this is an Iron Age terret, an Iron Age um, bit of horse gear, very different in form, more three-dimensional than these flat Roman ones, um, but the decoration is, is similar. And, and here we have um, horse gear of the same period, probably of the first century AD as well. So within the formal Roman period, from up in the, the northern part of Britain now, these, a lot of these things come out of Roman forts. The, this is horse gear in an Iron Age form, so it's more three-dimensional than the Roman stuff, and still using much more curvilinear forms of decoration, which hark back to um, Iron Age ways of doing things, red, red enamel again. So this would formally look like an Iron Age piece, but it actually comes out of a Roman military fort, whereas the stuff that I showed you a couple of slides ago, which are more formally Roman, actually come out of what might be seen as a more British context. Um, So what we're dealing with in the Roman period is a very complex set of worlds where people are making um, and are being led by material in a whole range of different ways. This is is a so-called dragon-esque brooch. These are brooches which are found... um, as far as we can date them, pretty well, they're found pretty well contemporary with the march of the Roman army into northern Britain. So they're found 60, 70, 80 AD onwards. And as the Romans moved into what is present-day northern England, southern Scotland, these things were produced, again, often in brass, a Roman metal, um, in quite different forms to anything we've seen before, but, but with... The, the sort of generally sinuous form um, harking back to Iron Age ways of doing things, the enamelling again. And these are quite big brooches now, quite in-your-face sort of brooches, um, where, where people are to some degree in a military Roman context asserting in quite a subtle way um, 
um, their, their longer-term antecedents. They're drawing on, on sets of traditions which go back to the Iron Age. Um, materials change in quite a complex way, as do ways of, of depositing those materials. Um, through the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age, people are in, in this part of the world, the River Thames, people are throwing swords and human skulls and a whole range of things into the Thames, um, right through uh, from the Middle Bronze Age through to the end of the Iron Age. In the Roman period, they're still throwing things away, but as far as we can tell, they're throwing different things away, odd things like pots and pans, bits of statuary. They stopped throwing the, the swords um, and, and they start depositing things, often on dry land. And this is a site that, that um, Gary Locke and Zena Kamash and I have been excavating over the last now nine years, I think, a place called Frilford um, out near Wantage, um, which is a wonderful early Roman site. Um, site confusingly has two names. Sometimes it's known as Frilford, sometimes it's known as Marcham. Um, the, the local landowners have been incredibly good to us who live in Marcham, so they'd be very happy if the site wasn't called Frilford anymore. It was called Marcham. So, so it's the same site. This is a site with a temple at one end. Um, starts in the first century AD, so early Roman period, with a, with a, a formal um, area around it defined by a wall, an amphitheatre over here also starts in the early Roman period. Possible, well, a big building which may or may not be a church. Um, and then within the areas that we've dug, a whole series of formal depositions, human beings, animals are deposited in various different ways, but also lots of metalwork. Um, these are personal grooming kits, little tweezers and, and um, nail um, cleaners and things, uh, and various different medallions, coins. So people are, are depositing material, in this case on dry land, in large amounts and in very highly structured ways. And when we get round to really analysing the, the, the material from this, we're hoping to... Um, hoping to get to grips with um, the, the, the nature of the deposition and what people were depositing with what and what, to some degree, it might all mean. Um, in looking at this long-term perspective from the Bronze Age through the Iron Age into the Roman period, um, if I was to sum up and, and contrast the Roman period with what went before, the Roman period, to some degree, is a combination of Bronze Age mass production, standardised forms in large amounts, um, and um, variability that one finds in the Iron Age. So, so the coins here are obviously pretty standardised, so are these little um, personal kits. But then you get other things which are, which are much more one-off, unusual uh, things which we find in small amounts. And, and obviously the nature of identity in Roman Britain was many and various. People were to some degree asserting their local identity as, as descendants of Iron Age people. To some degree, they were buying into the broader Roman world. Um, and and the, the, 
the, the nature of social difference, the, the difference between the commoners and the people further up the social spectrum, the differences between different areas of the country were becoming more marked. Um, and, and people were doing that within a world that was, that was increasingly um, mass-produced and standardised and, and drawing on ways of producing and using material culture which harks back to the period prior to, to the Roman period. So in many ways, I would say that the, the people in this country were res obviously responding to, to Roman imposition in very complex ways, but they were responding in ways that was directed, in, to, to some degree at least, by these longer-term changes in the nature of material culture and the ways in which people have become enculturated by objects. Here we have um, Lieutenant General Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, um, generally known by the last two of his names, Pitt Rivers, because there's too much of the others. Um, as, as Mark mentioned, I worked in the Pitt Rivers Museum for, for which you know, it's just over there, um, for 13 years. Um, Pitt Rivers coined the term typology. He, in the 1870s, he was very interested in the nature of artifactual change um, and he collected things in series, as he called them, um, in order to, to look at how different types were established and, and how they changed. And the, one of the many glories of the Pitt Rivers Museum is that it's still typologically or, uh, organised, more or less. I mean, it's not, not quite true. Um, Pitt Rivers, this is some of the early displays. Um, these are harpoons and things. Um, so all the, uh, the harpoons and spears in this case were put together. One of the wonderful things about this, um, probably taken, uh, we don't quite know when it was taken, in, in the end of the 19th century, one of the wonderful things about this was there was no glass on the top of the objects. And people who taught with these objects would take their students around and pull a harpoon off and show it to people, which is a, a world that's now sadly gone. But that's, that's by the by. This, this um, Pitt Rivers was, was um, his, his life work in many ways was, was to understand types, was under, to understand the, the, the nature of typological change. And he was interested in artifacts for much the same, and I was slightly horrified by thinking about this when I was putting this lecture together, because Pitt Rivers is not someone totally to emulate in all ways. Um, he, he was interested in artifactual change because he felt it was essential human history. It told us about the long term. So things like language changed very quickly, he thought. Languages came and went and died out. But artifacts were, were the things that could, could really provide the long sweep of history. Um, and, and by arranging artifacts in, um, in all their very minute variations... Um, he made two points. One was a Darwinian point, because he was a convinced um, Darwinian scholar. One was a Darwinian point that change only ever occurs um, by small steps and incrementally. It doesn't make big leaps. Um, and, and allied to that very quickly, and this is the bit of Pitt Rivers that I wouldn't want to emulate, um, it is that revolutionary change is unnatural. 
That was, that was the message that he wanted. His first ex public exhibition of his stuff was in Bethnal Green, working class area of East London. And it was there specifically for an educational purpose. It was to tell the working classes that revolution was against nature. And that the whole sweep of human history said, you know, people like me are in charge. And, and there's a good reason why that's true. And we should stay in charge. Um, my point in, in emphasising typology and slow incremental change is a rather different one from Pitt Rivers. I think sudden change is possible and, and maybe you know, we're undergoing a set of relatively sudden changes now and one can never really know that. And, and thinking back to my very early slides of, of the human brain and the plasticity of the human brain and the body and our relationship with artefacts. I mean, if we accept the notion of human plasticity, then the human organism is capable of very rapid change. Within our lifetime, we can embrace new sets of things, new sets of materials, new ways of doing things. And maybe that rapid change is, is not so much unnatural, but, but is quite dangerous in the sense that if, if, if we embrace too much change too suddenly, we could destabilise ourselves. I mean, I think we all sometimes have those sort of panicky moments as to whether life is all changing slightly too fast and we can't keep up with it. So, so maybe at the heart of human transitions is, is this tension between the capacity of the human organism to change instantaneously within the lifespan of a human being um, and the much slower sets of possibilities and the, and the, the more or less stabilising aspects of material culture um, which don't necessarily provide for conventionalism and stability and lack of change, but they're always counterbalanced by these, these forms of, of, of the, these possibilities of rapid change. So some, something like the Roman period is particularly interesting because it combines areas, uh, aspects of life which did fundamentally change over, over human lifespans over a number of, of generations. But, but chugging along behind all of that uh, are these longer-term continuities. Uh, and, and people are making sense of their lives by drawing on sets of, of relationships with artefacts which predate them as human beings, predate their individual biographies, and navigating complex changes by, by drawing on these longer-term artefactual stabilities. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thank you.